It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Kim Morrison. Kim, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Oh, thank you so much, Levin. That's wonderful. How the bloody hell are you in beautiful Sunshine Coast? It's stunning. We're pretty lucky. I mean, the image behind me is very much like how I feel up here. It's a beautiful part of the world. Is that photograph behind you somewhere locally taken? In your backyard? No, no, I wish. I wish. I just loved it. When I saw it, I just went, that's got to be my backdrop. So I just, yeah, I love, there's a, there's a statement or a, a Japanese word called Shinrin Yoku. And Shinrin Yoku means forest bathing. And it's seen as one of the most extraordinary things we can do for our health, our wellness, our vibrational frequency, our energy. And also it's said to anti-age. So the Japanese are very big on spending time in nature. So it just reminds me of that. Well, I'm a I'm a big, big fan of that statement as well. And I couldn't agree more. Having done a bit of uh, trail running and ultra running myself, I know that through my digging of you, young Kim, you are no stranger to some long-distance running yourself. No, no, it was a crazy sport, very crazy sport. Um, it started when I was, I was 19, 20, and I was living in Melbourne, and I was getting up my hours for my sports uh, therapy diploma, and I really wanted to get it done quick, so I was going to Aussie Rules Games, netball, um, I was working on the sun tour, the bicycle tour, cycling tour. And then someone said, oh, you should go and do, you should go to a 24-hour race. So I went along to this 24-hour race and I got assigned to a guy called Cliff Young. And many people won't may not remember him, but he was the uh, winner of the first inaugural Sydney to Melbourne 1,015-kilometre run way back when Westfield sponsored it. And he did it at 68 years of age. And he was known as a potato farmer from Colac and he intrigued me. And I got assigned to him. He had two blondes looking after him. And we were talking to him. And at about 2 o'clock in the morning, what they call the graveyard shift, I remember sitting there in the freezing cold going, this is the most stupid sport I've ever witnessed in my life, watching, you know, 40 athletes run around a 400-metre track. What a stupid thing to do. And Cliffy asked me, he said, what do you think of, of ultras? And I said, they're stupid. Why? You know, <laughs> this is dumb. And he said, well, you know, why don't you put your money where your mouth is and run one? And having been a netballer, I got to state level back in Auckland. Um, I, I love sport and I would much rather participate than watch. So I thought, why not? So I got up and I walked over to the registration table and I filled out a form to run in a few weeks' time in a 12-hour race in uh, Victoria. 
And I'd never run beyond 10Ks in my life, but I figured it looked pretty easy watching it. So I, I entered this race and Cliffy came up to me at the beginning of that race and he just said, just remember one thing, it's 90% mental and 10% physical. And I was like, yeah, 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 got that, got that. And about four hours into the race, I'd gone through the marathon and it was in that point this voice appeared in my head and it was saying things like, what the hell? What a stupid thing to be doing. Sit down. And then my left knee hurt. And then my right ankle hurt. And then my back was hurting. And then my toenails were lifting. And I found every excuse under the sun to quit. I kept going into the pit stop tent going, I can't go on. This is impossible. And then Cliffy would just tap his head and tap his heart as he kept, you know, shuffling past me in the pit stop tent. And a guy that kind of became my coach just sort of said, you know, you're better off being out on the track. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Just you're better off moving than sitting, you'll seize. And the big thing was when he turned around and said, you don't want DNF next to your name, do you? Which just did not finish. And no, I did not want DNF. So I got back my sorry butt back out on the track and just put one foot in front of the other. And at least I thought if I was moving forward, at least I was getting kilometres rather than sitting there feeling sorry for myself. And I did, and I kept going. And then sometimes the pain would go, so I would run and then pick up the energy. And then, of course, coming to the end of the race when people were there and everyone's cheering, I found this energy I didn't even know I had. And so I finished that race and won it. I ran 95.4 Ks, and I thought, sweet, done, won it, good. And as they handed me my trophy, they said, you've won a place to represent Victoria in the 24-hour championships. And I just about died. Everyone was clapping and cheering. But here I was thinking, God, I'm going to have to do that all over again and twice as long. But it was a challenge, and I do love challenges. So I trained for the next, I think, six months. And then I was lined up again in Victoria, ready to run the Victorian Championships. And the previous um, champion, a lady called Sandra Kerr, who was 42 at the time, I think I was 20, 21, and she was in the race. And I figured, you know, I was half her age, I should beat her. Um, just that really beautiful thing that young people do and just figured this wouldn't be that hard, just had to do twice as long as what I did. And <laughs> that's another whole story in itself, but I ran that and ended up winning that race and set a world record for being the youngest female to run 100 miles, um, which then gave me entry to run for Australia in the UK. So I went to America and went to the UK and just found myself in this crazy sport that I never, if you'd ever said to me when I was younger, you'll end up running for Australia, it was like, there's no way. I wanted to play netball for New Zealand. So, you know, it's that beautiful thing in life. You just, you know, sometimes if you surrender and you actually go with the flow and see where things take you and give it your best no matter what you do, I realised that a dream that I'd never even realised was a dream came true. And, yeah, I learned lots about myself. And Cliffy did say that, you know, you will you will find your deepest, darkest self when you do a 24-hour race. And, yeah, I found her. Found the greatness, but I also found what a wuss she was and how much she didn't really uh, like pushing herself, didn't like challenge, didn't like pain. Um, and if anything, ultras taught me the power of if we really want something bad enough, doesn't matter how painful or how challenging, you find a way. It's one of those things because I've, I've complete, completed two 100-kilometre ultras and I had a crack at a, a, a second one after the first one five weeks after doing my IT band on the very first one that I did. And I injured myself halfway through the run and ended up limping for about 50 kilometres. And so it took me just under 19 hours to do the 100. 
And it was, it will still be the hardest thing I've ever done, but I attribute it now to being the, one of the greatest things because it unlocked my mind and my, what I thought was now possible. And I think it's a reoccurring theme with these ultra runners. It sounds like that might've had a similar impact on you as well. Yeah, it's pretty, and it's a motive, right? You know, when you're challenged and you're pushed and you're tired and you're, you just, and you've never done it before. That's even more amazing when you haven't done it before. It's like you're in an uncharted, unknown territory and you have no idea if you've got what it takes or haven't got what it takes. But as Cliffy always said, if you just keep put, stay in action, one foot in front of the other. And I think what I've done with my ultramarathon uh, experiences has, it's such a metaphor for life. We hit walls, we chafe, we blister, we hurt, but then we run through, we break down barriers, we cross finish lines. You're then looking for the next race. Um, life is full of highs and lows and pain and challenge and wins and losses and injuries and um, mind screws and all of these things. And so whenever I speak now, I use it as a direct metaphor for business, for life, for parenting, for relationships. And you don't have to run an ultra marathon to understand what I'm saying but I think most of us that have done any kind of an ultra even a marathon and I say even I say that with deepest respect (laughs) anyone to do a marathon is phenomenal and that's why it's such I think as we get older it becomes such a beautiful challenge because it's how far can we push ourselves how far can we run in the cycle of the sun? How far, what's it like to be up for 24 hours, let alone run for 24 hours? So to do all of these things, and, and for goodness sake, don't think I'm amazing. I'm still absolutely blown away that the world record for men is now over 300 kilometres in 24 hours. And for women, it's over 240 k's. That's 10k an hour every hour for 24 hours. So, you know, what I did was, I know it's amazing. And I, I really have to remind myself Um, as an athlete, that it was extraordinary. But I also am humbled by the fact that there are so many greater runners and people out there that have gone on to unbelievably set incredible records and personal feats that most people wouldn't even dream of getting up and doing. Well, you've you've done some hard yards with an ultramarathon there, Kim. What's some other really tough stuff that you've experienced in your life? The childbirth. I remember when I was in the middle of giving birth, my girlfriend, one of my friends, best friends was there and she's going, and in between contractions, she's going, would you rather be here? Would you rather be running an ultra? (laughs) And I remember when I was running an ultra, a lady that was in the race, you know, the women that were older than me said, oh, this is nothing to giving birth. And I thought, I'd rather give birth and do this. And then when I was in the middle of giving birth, I was like, give me an ultra any day. This is tough. So, um, You know, that was tough. Um, Business is always a challenge. There's highs and lows in that. Relationships, you know, there's people that you think are friends and then things happen and relationships break down. Marriage, um, we've been through lots of highs and lows. Um, You know, uh, Danny, I know you've had him on the show and, you know, losing his sister to suicide, knowing Danny went through depression and just all the things that we've been through. Um, Each one of them is so extraordinarily painful in the moment and losing our house and losing um, money. And, you know, I mean, I feel like I've been through lots um, of things, but no more than anyone else. You know, let's be honest, we all have stories and we all have challenges. And I think what's so remarkable about each of us and our stories isn't so much the story 
But I think what humans are so interested and driven by is the power of how you come out the other side. So it's easy to quit. And that's just one thing I learned in ultras. It's easy to sit in the pit stop tent and say, I've got a sore leg, I've got a sore ankle, I can't go on. And people understand. Most people would look at people running ultras and go, totally get it. Quit. I get it. Um, relationships, you know, he's an asshole, she's a witch. Like, I don't know, there's always stories. People do things that are wrong and bad or seen as wrong and bad. Yet what we don't realise in the throes of those challenges and those breakdowns and breakups, in hindsight, when we look back on them, we realise that they were an incredible platform for us to catapult ourselves into new um, challenges and beauty and relationships. And uh, But most people, we hate the pain. So humans are driven to towards pleasure or away from pain and we hate pain we don't do pain very well we don't do challenge very well which is why drugs and alcohol and abuse is such a big thing and I've studied this for many years how strange we are as human beings we do not like pain and it's probably one of my passion points now is realizing the power of resilience and realizing that resilience is something that can only be born out of challenge you don't just get given resilience you learn resilience through the different things that we've uh, that we have thrown at us and I tell you this I am yet to meet anyone who doesn't have a story or some challenge or some incredible things that they've had to overcome so you know part of the human experience is to experience challenge and pain and yet we are not taught that that's part of life. Yeah, I wonder when we'll get to a point where we're, it's it's commonplace that, you know, you need to suffer some sort of adversity. And I use, I use the word suffer for effect more than anything else because it, it ends up being in hindsight a real blessing if you if you can interpret it as a blessing rather than and holding on to it as a pain point or, a uh, you know, going, staying in that victim mode. Because you're, you're a, a, a multiple best-selling author and one of, you, one of your books is called The Art of Self-Love. And I was curious to know what was the inspiration for that book? Where did that come from? I think watching, you know, Danny and I, for those that don't know, he was a cricketer for New Zealand for 10 years, um, an amazing bowler, fit, healthy, from a beautiful family um, in many ways. And we had stories on the cover of magazines. It was such a surreal life. But we were in this perfect bubble. We had the perfect life. I thought we had the perfect life, the perfect relationship. Um, I, we never took it for granted. We always knew it would come to an end. So we were very grateful. And Danny was really at the beginning of when uh, cricketers started being paid money. So for him to earn a living from something he loved and then my passion around the human body and sport and how to push ourselves I felt I was a great team member for him and supporting him. I love nutrition. I love looking after him, love mindset, love studying the power of the mind and the body and, and just felt that we had a really great um, thing happening. And, you know, sometimes life spits you out and throws you up and, you know, he got dropped from it. We found out sitting in the car driving, I'll never forget it, driving over the Auckland Harbour Bridge and we heard on the radio that he'd been dropped from the New Zealand side, didn't even get a phone call. And that was pretty heartbreaking for a man that had dedicated his life to the sport of cricket and to New Zealand cricket. So that was hard. And then to watch Danny um, feel like he'd lost um, his place in the team and the team had gone through all ups and downs and it was just, I think deep down he just knew there was no way he was going to get back in. It had a new coach. He was doing a clean out of all the older players. So you could just tell 
there was no space for Danny anymore, um, even though they didn't have that open-hearted conversation. So to watch Danny then, you know, I'm sure you've interviewed people, I'm sure we all know people, and I really feel for these top sportsmen that through their 20s, maybe into their early 30s, if they're lucky, you know, they've reached the highest of highs, they've earned the best money, they've had, you know, for like Danny, 110, 120,000 people chanting his name at the MCG, um, taking wickets, taking a hat trick. Um, I don't know if any of us could picture doing anything better. Like, who are you when that all stops? And it's not like Danny had a degree or another career to fall back on. Cricket was his life. So then I watched this man. Um, I, I don't know if flounder was the right word, but just try and work out who he was and probably felt like he'd been spat out onto the sports junk heap of life. And no one really cared about you anymore. And I'm not saying that from us to say, well, it was me, but it was really hard to see him as someone who everyone loved and wanted to be a part of and paid to wear certain things or do whatever to all of a sudden, yeah, what's the next best thing? Yeah. Um, you realise that, you know, life is fickle. Um, so then over a period of time, and I look back on it now, I realised that Danny was going into more and more of a world of self-loathing and self-depression and not knowing who he was anymore and trying different jobs. And to his credit, he got into media and you have to forge your way in there. And he had to keep trying and showing up and radio shows and television presenting and realised that his skill um, with drama classes from his mum and all those sorts of things probably made him quite theatrical in front of the camera. And, you know, luck would have it. And he created the opportunity that T20, 2020 came along and he just found a niche for himself. But through that period, we lost his sister. We lost our house and a property deal that went wrong. And I guess watching him through depression and trying to work out who he was, we had a family. We then decided to move to Australia. Um, I then launched a business in the throes of all of that. And then we lost the rest of our money in the 2008 financial crash. And it was like, shit, who are we now? And I realized I was really trying to carry a 10 and an 11-year-old and Danny and a business. And it was tough. And um it was probably all through that time I was transcribing every Anthony Robbins um, speech, Oprah, Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, um, every Dr. Joe Dispenza, Dr. Brian Weiss. I just, I went on a, a mission to listen to how all these people um, get through tough times and just, and the best way for me was to hand transcribe everything. So um, I just did that for three years, four years and it was during that time I started noticing a pattern and realising that's when I realised everybody goes through tough times, nobody comes out unscathed, what are you going to do with it? But I think being an athlete, I was also trying to come up with a pathway. So when I feel this, where's my next step? And when I feel that, how do I get to the next point? And where do I pick myself up when my body's hurting? And how do I do it when my mind's hurting? And what do I do when someone's saying awful things? And so, yeah, it was really tough. And it was probably when my 16, at the time, Jacob was 16, um, you know, I thought we were all coming out the other side. I knew he was struggling a little bit. And there's a saying, you know, a mum is only as happy as her saddest child. And I just was so unhappy for my boy. I knew he was struggling. Um, 
I don't know why he they, they had a blessed life, but, you know, again, we each have our own lessons to learn through each life. And he ended up coming into our room. Danny happened to be home that time and he was lying, we were just going off to sleep and Jacob arrived and he sat on the end of the bed and I just looked up at him and I said, what's up, mate? And he just looked down and I, can I tell you what he actually said? Is it okay to swear if you might need to bleep it? But Fucking oath. Yeah, great. So he um, he sat on the end of the bed and he just said, my life's fucked. I hate myself and I don't want to be here. And all my insides just wanted to grab him and hold him and say, shit, you are remarkable, you're amazing, don't think like this. But you can't say that to someone when they're feeling like that. That's their truth. That's their perspective. That's what they're seeing. And everything I'd been writing and listening. So I pulled out my journal, which is a big, um, it's not A4, A4, no, the next one, A3 notebook, where I mind mapped and been and spent hours transcribing people. I pulled it out and I said to him, I, I don't know if this appeals to you, Jake, but I don't think that your life sucks right now. I just think it, I mean, I don't think your life sucks full time. I think it just sucks right now. And if if you're willing, I'll show you something that I think I've come up with. Do you want to hear it? Now, I've been trying to talk to him about this over the previous 12 months, but he didn't want to know about it. And this mm-hmm. is something else I've learned. Sometimes people have to hit rock bottom so that both feet can get planted firmly on the ground so that they can push themselves back up. So you sometimes have to let people fall to their greatest depths while you're watching them do it. It's so painful to do. But he was at rock bottom and he said, yeah, mum, I want to hear it. By this stage, our 17-year-old daughter had appealed, so the four of us were on the on the bed, and I just drew this big heart on the piece of paper and I wrote the word self-love. And I said, um, we know when we feel good about ourselves, we know when we are happy in ourselves, we have a tank full of self-love. And we know the opposing nature or opposing force of love. I wouldn't say it's hate. I'd say it's fear because whenever we're fearful about all these different things, that's the two opposing forces. And so I drew a big arrow coming out of that big heart and I wrote the words sabotage and fear. And I said, tell me how you feel when we're in this place. And he just said, sucks, hate myself, angry, scared, Um, And if you add in all the other words that we could use in there, like guilt, remorse, shame, fear, all of those words can sit all in that box. And we all know them. We've all felt them. So there's only two places we ever are in life. And for many places for me, you're either in the pit stop tent or you're out on the track. So on the track, you're in love. And obviously in the pit stop tent, you're either just getting ready to get back on the track or you're sitting there. And I looked at Jake and I said, so the first step to get back in that circle is number one is self-awareness, awareness that you are in a bad place. And when we're aware that we're in a bad place, it's almost like you give yourself permission to be there and it's okay to be there. It's okay to feel guilt or anger or shame or remorse or fear or all of those feelings. It's actually okay because that's part of life and some things really do piss us off or some things really do hurt or some things are really scary. So I said to him, you know, if you're aware that you're in a bad place, you're already back in the work. You're doing the work of self-love. But the next step is self-care. Number two is self-care. When you're aware that you're in a bad place, you've got to take care of yourself. Whereas most people, when we're in a bad place, will sabotage ourselves further with alcohol, drugs, sex, um, you know, 
self-loathing, putting ourselves down, bad self-talk, gossip. We, we do all the things that keep feeding mm. it. Uh, but if we take care of ourselves, so talking to a 16-year-old, I might talk differently to how I talk to a woman or a mom or a dad or whatever. But to him, it was, you've got to have some green drinks every day, one green drink a day. You know, my little, I used to give him shots. Um, of greens and so he'd have to have that or greens with every meal can you do that and he said yeah and I said part of self-care is when I run you a bath just get in the bath it's good for your muscles we'll put magnesium in there that'll help you relax so he didn't know that I was as an aromatherapist I was putting little oils in there to help (laughs) with his mind and all that but self-care is really important eating well drinking lots of water um, doing the right things and sometimes I think having a bottle of bubbles or champagne or wine or whiskey with a mate when you're in the in the throes of it and you just want to get it off your chest I don't think that's a bad thing in all honesty for a day or two or maybe three days I don't know whatever the time limit is it's just you don't want to stay there so I'm not about saying you shouldn't do all these things I'm just doing what feels right in the moment and sometimes a chat with a girlfriend or a mate or getting blottoed um, for one day I'm not suggesting that as part of my recommendation but if it happens or that's something sometimes that connection with another mate is way more powerful than trying to work out what it is you need to do so but that mate's got to be somebody who's just willing to hear not jump into the gossip and the pain and the drama of it as well so self-care is really important but the next step is probably the most important of all in my work and that's what I've discovered to be self-discipline so it's all very good and well to take care of yourself and some people might do it for a day or two but to stay in the work of self-love takes discipline to be an athlete takes discipline to be to get a degree takes discipline to be a healthy mum or dad takes discipline to be a good person takes discipline and that to me is where people aren't willing to do the work they might do it for a week it's like joining a gym they pay the membership six weeks later they go oh it didn't work but they didn't realize they got to show up they got to do the weights they got to do the aerobic work they got to actually do the work yeah so I said to Jacob you know those first three steps self-awareness self-care and self-discipline is doing the work you have to do the work and then we fall into a place of self-control where we are better with the way we speak so for Jacob I said to him with the discipline you're not allowed to swear at a teacher he was on the verge of being kicked out of school you're not allowed to swear at a teacher your discipline for the next 28 days is that if someone annoys you because let's face it people can annoy us when you get that trigger rather than reacting to it just say two words that's interesting because it's interesting that they think like that it's not your problem whether they think like that or whether they should agree with you or not. It's just interesting. So that was his discipline I put on from no swearing for 28 days. And um, that's interesting every time someone triggered him, including us as parents. So he kind of said, yeah, I could do that. Through that, if you do it for 28 days, we know it creates new neurochemical loops. We know that the brain can create a new habit and pathway. So we then know we have better self-control. The next time someone triggers us, we're going to have better self-control with the way we speak. Next time we feel self-loathing, we're not going to go and blotto ourselves. We might just, you know, go and do walk out on the grass and stand in bare feet and just say something we're grateful for. As woohoo as that sounds, sometimes that's one of the best things we can do. Um, and so self-control becomes a very beautiful, powerful part of self-love because you don't buy into the drama, the gossip and the story. 
And he was really listening. And then with that, when we have better self-control, we have self-respect. And to me, self-respect is something that's one of the most powerful parts of self-love because when you really care for yourself, you're not going to go and hammer yourself with a whole lot of whiskey. When you care about this body, this one temple that you've been gifted, you're not going to go and hurt it with you know, KFC or McDonald's. You're going to really respect it with the right foods. And you're going to go and forest bathe. You're going to go and have massage. You're going to make it a priority to take care of yourself. You're also not going to go and have one night stands or or if you do you're going to go into it with awareness and care for yourself um and you do it with that real you know positive mindset yeah. so i'm not saying you shouldn't do that but there's a different way of doing it rather than the walk of shame um you know there's just so much and there's a word in new zealand that the maori use which is mana and it's the reflection of god within ourselves and when we have that there is no gossip or putting down or hurting others or being mean or you know, keyboard warrior, that mana. When we have mana, we nothing can phase us. Nothing can get to that part in here. And as Jacob was really keen and listening to this, and then and I said, and when we have mana or self-respect, we have self-acceptance. And self-acceptance means that we love ourselves warts and all. We can appreciate that we have bad days and great days. We know that sometimes life isn't always great, but it is also wonderful at times and then you can be in this place of self-love and feeding all of this and the next minute you get a phone call or a teacher says something and you can be spat out again but I just said to Jacob if I don't know about you my and I love but you know having steps and he went and he just looked up at me and he goes mum this is the first time I've had anyone explain it like this you have to write a book and I figured if a 16 it sort of chokes me a little bit because I figured if a 16 year old boy can get this, then surely to God, the rest of the planet could understand that self-love is work, but it's the most beautiful um, superpower each one of us can hold. And it's, but it takes work. You you have to keep doing the work. It's never a static journey. It is an evolutionary journey. And each journey and each challenge and each pain that we get spat out of builds resilience and the circle of love just gets bigger and bolder and stronger. So that's why I wrote The Art of Self-Love. Well, it's, it's, I I really love that, Kim. And I think having had the benefit of interviewing Danny before you, it seems like you have played a, a pivotal role in the in the rapid recovery of your family, and not not saying that you know Danny didn't have his part in that as well, but the that that leading by example, I think, is the greatest thing that you can do is is part of that self respect that you develop that you're talking about. And, and rather than trying to convince people to do what you should do, you know, which, is, which is impossible in most cases, that if you're just leading and doing your thing, you'll, you'll gravitate. And that's a beautiful thing that your son's come and had this, um, and you've had this impact on him. And I suppose going forward, has he taken a liking to this type of mindset now and is now passing this forward onto other people in his life? It's interesting to watch, Jay. He did end up getting kicked out of school. So um didn't matter about the conversation, did it? But, um, but what was brilliant about that is, and I kept saying to him, um, there's something to learn in this. that You've, you've got to realise that things like this happens, but it's only up to you if you're going to be willing to do it. So then we ended up ringing 
a school down in Brisbane and Danny had done some coaching there and he spoke to the head of sport there and then he just said, why don't you bring Jacob down? Now, this is a very elite, beautiful school in the heart of Brisbane and Jacob had dreamed of playing uh, GPS rugby, rugby and he ended up getting into this college. They asked about his mistakes. They asked how he felt and he and then they said, are you willing to draw a line in the sand and, and create a new version of yourself, be the best that you can be? That's all we ask. And he said yes, but the downfall was he had to repeat year 11, which is it was pretty big. And Jacob did that and he repeated year 11. I didn't care if he didn't finish year 12 or finish. I just wanted him to get through that year. And then he was made vice captain once rugby started. He was made vice captain. It was hard, though, for him watching all his mates on the Sunshine Coast. He was at boarding school watching all his mates, you know, in their final year of school. And particularly as graduation came along, he, you know, had just, he wasn't even, he had another year to go. But I said, doesn't matter. Just quit. You don't have to finish next year. You've done your years of school. I'm happy with that. You're happy with that. And he texted me the week before school finished as he watched all the year 12s graduate and they've got these beautiful ceremonies being a boys school which I felt he really needed to be around men and good role models and things like that he texted me and said mum I'm going to do year 12 so it was pretty extraordinary to watch him then repeat you know that year but then go on the following year and here's the bigger thing because he was now a year older he also couldn't play rugby that year and I took it to parliament to try and fight to let boys like him who have repeated years be able to play but for whatever I mean it's now passed through that they can do that but at the time it wasn't allowed for him so then I said you've either got to suck it up and just focus on work so he has had challenge after challenge after challenge and you know to watch him graduate uh, on the 16th of November 2018 and to watch him walk across the stage and actually get his graduation certificate uh, him and I were just you know we were so proud of each other and of him and he just was a role model for all of us um, he still goes through highs and lows he's now down in Brisbane really focused on playing rugby is he sharing the knowledge there's still a part of me that thinks that Jacob has got a lot of growing to do. But when I hear him talking sometimes, it's there. And I think for many men, what I've learnt with boys and young men, that frontal lobe, that development just sometimes takes a bit longer. So I'm just trying to do what I say to all my clients and all my people that follow me. Whenever I get upset with him or frustrated by him, what would love do? What would love say? It just accepts him for who he is, knowing that he has to find the path himself. And, you know, he'll send beautiful texts or he speaks that, you know, and he spoke at my, our daughter's 21st. It's all there. He spoke so powerfully. So I think it's like any young person, you know, you just got to find yourself. And I can't help him do that. Um, I can just be a guide. I've learned that a parent can't walk in front of their kids. They shouldn't walk behind their kids. Our job is to walk beside them and just guide them the best we can. And I, I hope and I think he is, well, no, I, I, I know he's a remarkable young human and he's just got, when he gets it, when he starts to do like what you're doing and he starts to feel who he is and he understands the power of that mana within him, mountains will move. I just got to be patient, wait for him to get there. Well, it sounds like he's on the right path. He's got wonderful role models in his parents. I don't know about his sister. I'm sure she's, she's a really stunning. <laughs> you sure want to interview her? She's pretty <laughs> phenomenal. Well, I saw an interview from like 2012 uh, when she was doing ballet. Mm -hmm. Is she still a ballet dancer? 
So she started ballet at 12, which is really late um, for a young dancer, and she fought hard and she, she did well. She got into the Queensland National Ballet. She has, she's now a professional dancer. She's chosen not to. The ballet has given her all the groundwork. She doesn't want to stay in the strict ballet sense, but all her skills of ballet have been used in beautiful um, stage shows. And, yeah, she's, she's, she's an amazing young woman to interview. She's really grown a lot and listening to her. And then I even invited all three of them on stage when I spoke at a summit a wellness summit in Melbourne last year and I said to them I'm going to throw you guys under the bus I'm going to bring you up on stage are you okay with that and they all looked at me and went yeah there were 700 people 800 people in the audience and all three of them got up on stage and I just said to them you know if there was one piece of advice to give to this audience around wellness and health and self-belief what would it be and Taylor she was so funny she turned around she goes well everybody needs a Kim Morrison in their life it was so (laughs) cute and um, so she was really beautiful and and thanked me for a lot of the the tools and things that I've read and, and I honestly it's very minimum to what people that I love to follow um, but thankfully it made an impact and she said you know I think it's just really important and she goes and first of all I just want to acknowledge you all for being here you know I know there's lots of distractions in the world so to actually come to a wellness summit to learn about yourself and to see how you can do life better that in itself is a win and then she said, but you've just got to be honest with yourself and you've got to know that nutrition is really important and you've got to move your body and you've got to um, be mindful that to love yourself is one of the greatest superpowers you can ever have. So I'm just standing there watching her going, okay, go girl. And then she hands the microphone to Jacob and he goes, yeah, well, she just stole my thunder. Um, but he goes, but I guess for me, the most important thing when it comes to wellness and mindset is to never stop believing in yourself. And if you do stop believing in yourself, get with people who believe in you. And I thought that was pretty amazing for a young man to say that. And then Danny said communication to him was everything to be able to, you might not feel like as a man, you should say when you're feeling vulnerable or weak or not good enough. But in fact, communication with people that care about you would be one of the strongest things that he'd recommend. And I looked at them all and I thought, geez, there's a book in every one of them. You know, like it's so that, you know, they they have got very, they're very independent, strong people. But as a family, we're very open. We have, champ- when they were little, I would have champion challenge nights. What's your champion moment? What's your challenge? Do you need support from the rest of us about your challenge or are you okay just telling us about your challenge? Because so often we all just want to fix it for everybody, but to listen and to actually hear it. And often as we're saying it, we know in our minds, heart and soul what we need to do. So those champion challenge nights were great. Um, I've always been very open. Um, I've always felt that the best way to communicate with my son as he's got older is massaging his feet. And when I'm massaging his feet, I'm like, how's your day, mate? And he opens up more and more the more I, I touch him and I look after him and he just gradually opens up. So I've learned, you know, so often, sadly, touch isn't such a big part of our world anymore. But for me, being an aromatherapist and a body therapist and a sports therapist, to me, touch is one of the most powerful things. So, and Taylor, like she, I just interviewed her on my podcast and she was amazing just saying the things she's learned. She loves reading. She loves quotes. And so does Jacob. Jacob loves, he'll send me um, quotes out of a rap song or, or they'll both send me quotes that they've seen. So quotes are really powerful for all four of us. And I think that's a really nice thing to share in a group chat with your family. And, you know, those sorts of things just really matter. They seem so little, but I think they're very profound and helpful. 
Yeah, the, the quote side of thing is something I really, really love and, and I think must be one of those things that you pick up when you start listening to the, a lot of the motivational speakers. And I've spoken to you uh, about my experience with the amazing Les Brown and, and just watching him perform and he's on, he's on live streaming pretty much every day and he's got these amazing one-liners that are some of his and some are taken from other people. And we had, you know, Tom Ziegler on the show and the, the quotes that they share. And they, I don't know what it is about the, the quote that is so uplifting um, mm. that, I don't know, maybe it's, it's like a refocusing or recentering of the mind or something. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. Have you got any ideas on why they're so effective? I think we see ourselves in it and we don't feel alone. Someone else is saying exactly how we're feeling or someone else is saying something that really hits a part of us that resonates with us. So I think it's it's just a beautiful way of words being put together and you go, oh, I feel seen or I see you. And I think quotes to me are something that just pull, they also pull you out of yourself and they remind you that, and because most good quotes have a positive spin or a recognition of, of what you're going through. So, yeah, I think it's a really beautiful recognition maybe of two souls. That's, that could be what it is. That's a really great explanation, by the way. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> and, and Kim, you've written five books and appeared in one documentary, What's With Wheat?, and we explored some of this with Danny earlier. Have you always known about the issues associated with gluten or is this a relatively recent thing in the scheme of your life? No, I mean, it's interesting. I did the documentary What's With Wheat because I was seen as a skincare expert because I have a skincare company and how wheat is in so many of our products. So putting wheat products on the skin, wheat straw extract and things like that that are preserved, part of the preservative system, when we put them on our skin, does it have the same effect? And yes, of course, the skin absorbs many things depending on the, the size of the molecules that are absorbed into the bloodstream. So yeah, it was very fascinating. I mean, have I always been aware of this? I've always been interested in nutrition. Um, but if I look back on my training in the early 90s, it was all about low fat. Um, whereas now it's absolute opposite. Um, that was such a, when you understand how the low fat revolution came about, um, it really did start with Mr. Kellogg's saying that eating um, that unless you ate cereal, you you would end up masturbating. If you read the whole story, the Kellogg's thing, it is the, the classic um, thing if you really are interested. It's fascinating. And then what happened is one of my dearest friends who's a nutritionist, she decided she wanted to find out what is wrong with wheat? Why is everybody now all of a sudden? Because when we went to school, I don't know about you, but when we were at school, you would eat a donut or a chocolate eclair or you'd have white bread. And mm. none of us, I don't remember gluten intolerances at school. I don't even remember many people being overweight. And yet we ate cream and sugar and donuts and, and chips and all of that sort of thing. So when you when Cindy went on this 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 mission, she um, discovered that it's not what's wrong with wheat; it's what they're doing to wheat. So with the hybridization and the um, the, the the chemicals they use. So if you've ever known it, so glyphosate or weed Roundup. killer Roundup is they they throw that all over the wheat. And what happens is when anything, and even humans do this if we're slowly dying with a, an illness or something, we have this surge. If we are really at the end of our life or if wheat gets glyphosate or Roundup thrown on it, it goes to die. And then all of a sudden it has this burst, one last burst to, to bring itself back. And that's when they cut the wheat at its highest um, yield. But then all the glyphosate, and then it was... 
I'm not a scientist, but from what I can understand, when we eat that and it hits the microbiome in the gut and the shikimate pathway and how our amino acids react to that has created a negative reaction on the microbiome and how we're responding to wheat is the issue and what it's causing with gut health and all those sorts of things. And I was fascinated by that. So, yeah, I appeared in that documentary and, and I just appeared in a documentary just recently on the other end of the spectrum around, called Transcendence. And that's all about our mindset and, and how we relate to that, but how much the gut affects the way the mind thinks and vice versa. So it's, it's an incredible journey. It's a rabbit hole, I'm telling you, and you'd know it. The minute you study something opens up another whole can of worms to another thing and then you're down that. So it's, it's an evolutionary learning and I think it's something that we should be really proud of that the more confused we get, confusion is the state before understanding. So the more confused we are, we're just getting closer to understanding because anything we learn new is a new way of thinking. And it's a little bit interesting because then you place onto that beliefs, uh, upbringing, personalities, uh, mindset, then you realize that actually it's also about perspective and our own internal values and beliefs. So um, I don't know if you've, if, if you've ever held, I don't think I've got a pen here, but if we held, if we held this round pen up on a, uh, up in front of a projector and I held it this way, we know that this, the picture up a round pen would have up on that screen would be a rectangle. And yet if I turned it around this way, we know that the same pen just held a different way would have a circle, completely different shapes. So what is truth? Um, are you seeing the circle? Are you seeing the rectangle? And is either one wrong? And I find that fascinating that people can become so um, adamant on a belief, yet there's always another way and there's always an interesting perspective and there's always someone else seeing it differently. That's what makes the tapestry of life so colourful and so amazing. And to just say that's interesting rather than getting <laughs> hellbent on what someone's saying or not saying also allows us to all be humans and have different viewpoints. So I've loved that process of understanding nutrition. And certainly for Danny, I tried for ages to get him off wheat. I could see he was having inflammatory responses to it. He loved his bread. He's a typical bloke, loves his beer. To tell a man to stop drinking beer is like you're going to cut off his limbs, you know. So so, but it wasn't till he read Novak Djokovic's books. I was thinking, how do I get to a sportsman? So I got him Novak Djokovic's book called Born to Win or Serve to Win, I think it's called, Serve to Win. And Djokovic talks all in there about his understanding of what wheat was doing to his body and how he couldn't play and sugar and all of that. And when you read that and how his sport changed and Danny stopped eating wheat from that moment on. So, um, and yet we've been to France and we can eat wheat over there. So again, it's not what's wrong with wheat, but it's what they're doing to wheat. And in Australia and probably New Zealand, we use different chemicals on it. In France, it's an old emma wheat. It's an ancient grain. The way they process it is very differently. So even that is interesting, that we could eat a croissant in France and not have the same inflammatory response. So, you know, just be open to the investigation and inquiry about what works for me. What's the best thing for me? God, it's so complex. And I, I, I mean, having gone down this, own, this journey myself, Kim, I totally empathise with what you're saying. And I think the thing that I've focused on trying to get really good at is not being dogmatic in my approach and being very open to pivoting and shifting. And I've had to do that a few times, which can be confronting 
but it served me pretty well getting in tune with my body as best I can. And I've just, you know, for the last four or five years, I've been spending 25, 30 hours a week reading and, and absorbing and, and absorb, you know, just getting as much information as I can, trying to make an informed decision. Now with the benefit of the podcast, we had Professor Peter Bruckner, who is, a, I don't know if you know Peter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who basically wrote the, the sports medicine book alongside another author um, years ago. Mm-hmm. We've got he was prof- at the Australians. Oh, he was down in Melbourne. I heard him speak a number of times at the Olympic Park Stadium. So yeah, I know him very well. Yeah, because well, him and I have become close because he's involved with the low carb down under community. And mm-hmm. so there's a guy, Dr. Paul Mason, who's a genius on cholesterol and a bunch of other things coming on. But also Professor Tim Noakes will be on. He's uh, amazing. Late. Yeah, and and there was a paper that just came out the other day that vindicated saturated fat as a catalyst for uh, heart disease, uh, which is just like, and it barely got a mention anywhere. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, that whole Kellogg's thing you're talking about, there was a lot of, I think, because they were Seventh-day Adventists mm-hmm. and and the red meat caused the, the like a natural libido and they were trying to dull it down. And that's, that's how insidious it was. That's how it came about. And that's why Wheat Books came about. It's, it blows your mind how a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. has evolved, isn't it? Oh, and, it's, scary. Um, it's actually scary because we believe it. And, you know, growing up, I was really into low fat and, you know, I'm not growing up but in my early te- late teens and early 20s. That's what I was as an athlete. But then as I was running, I wanted more fat and I ate my scrambled eggs and I ate coconut oil and I had coconut uh, milks and, and realized that I didn't do well on low fat. I really needed it. So I think, and I was 10 kilos lighter than I am now when I was ultra marathon running and it was, it's not a very attractive sport and, um, <laughs> and, you know, as far as what it does to the body. So it's, it's a hard sport, but you want that fat. And we all, um, from what I've learned and from what I understand now, we need that fat. Every cell is made up of fat. So to look at fat as the bad guy is is now seen as very incorrect. So, yeah, those those doctors you're getting on, they've got some amazing science. I, I can't repeat it. I don't know how to say it, but I totally understand it and I really yeah. appreciate it. Well, that's why I'm getting them on, Kim, because they're far better at explaining it than I. Um, and, you know, like the thing that blew my mind with, the, say, cholesterol is that by by weight, our brains are 25% cholesterol. So, like, how could it be bad for us in the way that it's described? And then you sort of go down that rabbit hole and it's like, you know, a lot of the data coming out suggesting that statins might actually do more harm than good and it's like, oh, God, what's next? Yeah, there's, there's massive research on that saying how harmful they are. But I heard one analogy on cholesterol just to help people in that I thought it was brilliant. When your body's inflamed or when you have an area of irritation or your gut's not doing well or something's happening in the blood that it's it's not operating well, cholesterol actually comes in here, the LDL and the HDL comes in to protect the site. But, of course, when you look down the barrel of a microscope and you look in there and all you see is cholesterol, cholesterol got blamed. And the analogy was if there's a crime scene, all the police and fire workers and, and ambulance crew all come in, you could say that they were the problem because there's so many of them. Yeah. Yet what people don't realise is that they're in there to help the situation. So I thought that was a really powerful way of looking at cholesterol and understanding it. So, yeah, statins, from what I've heard, um, if, you can, if you can talk to a, a holistic integrative medical doctor and talk about the effects that they're having, then you might be interested to know 
that research. Yeah, talk to talk to Chris Cresser and Dr. Paul Mason. Yeah. Also, yeah. Uh, Chris, Chris is actually the guy that uh, inspired my awareness of my gluten intolerance and yeah. managed to get me off 17 years of medication, which I always talk about. Thank you, Chris. You're yeah. a great man. Um, there's another guy coming up, Peter Ballastet, who is a uh, regenerative farmer um, expert in, in terms of using uh, animals to repurpose the soil because there's a lot of issues with monocropping and, and growing fields of soy and wheat and corn and stuff and it not regenerating because it's not being defecated on by farm animals. And he's got some ideas around basically, you know, allowing the planet to function, continue further down the line. So, the, yeah, some interesting topics around. And, um, you know, the more information people have and they can make informed decisions, the better, I think. Yeah, permaculture is becoming a really big, important part of growing a few herbs or, you know, veggies in your own garden, especially with this whole COVID thing. It's taught us to get back to basics. Um, Dr. Charlie Arna is another one you'd love to speak to, a regenerative um, permaculture farmer. I love listening to these guys. They make sense to me. It's it's not rocket science either. It's, it's actually really good sense. So I think the more I hear this, the more I go, oh, Go back to the core, go back to what feels right and intrinsically sits with me as a human being on this planet and having chemicals and um, machinery and, and all of the things that we did for a noble cause to make life easier has probably gone too far now and perhaps it's time for us to get back to um, really that self-sufficiency and being mindful. I mean, so many kids don't even know what crops look like or where they come from. We are so used to getting them from a, 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 farm, a, a supermarket. So yeah. to take your kids to farmer's markets and to meet your local farmers, that's one of my favourite things to do every Saturday morning. Um, Danny and I get up and if the kids are here, we'll take them. But we go to the farmer's markets. We know where our, I don't personally eat red meat, but the family does. And so to get our lamb from a beautiful grass-fed organic butcher who loves his lambs and his animals, um, you know, we get our salmon well caught if we can mainly, um, seeing where our vegetables come from here, they're local. And that's that whole slow revolution, seasonal, local, organic and whole. People say, oh, but it's so expensive. And my answer is always compared to what because you are not comparing the same thing when you mm -hmm. are talking about things that have been refrigerated for six months and transported and the life force of that plant that food that crop is nowhere near the same having said that if it meant eating no vegetables as opposed to vegetables from a supermarket then of course you're going to do the best that you can but yeah i think it's the more mindful and the more awareness we have around things like this the more it sits with us instead of being told what to do we know what to do. We know what our forefathers and mothers have taught us. We did not get here today without incredible intelligence from mm -hmm. our grandmothers and, and generations before us. So to think that to do it in a laboratory is the same thing, maybe it's time to start questioning. Do we want it as fast? Maybe we are to blame, not maybe, our desire for having things quicker and faster and more available is actually being our undoing as well. So I love the whole slow analogy. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? And I think uh, one of the things that sort of blew my mind recently, Kim, was the brain capacity of human beings evolved when we discovered fat and we started cooking um, meat. And then as we consume more and more fat, we evolved from monkeys and then got to a point where our brain capacity, I think might have got to 150 cc's uh, and it started to decrease 
back again. So we're devolving. And, and I think that since modern agriculture came in, um, mm-hmm. and I was, it's funny, I was talking to Danny about the ancient Egyptians where they, they were wheat worshippers and like, like they, they even had a name, they were, you know, like, you know, the lovers of wheat and did all their trade with wheat. And because they mummified everyone so beautifully, <laughs> they were able to MRI and do all these isotope tests to work out what they died of and what their teeth and their teeth were all filed down because they used to put sand when they were milling the wheat to, to help break it down. And you could pay higher, you could pay more money for a better quality wheat that had less sand at one point. Wow. It like, and wow. just like the mind is just blowing. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we could learn a lot from our forefathers and foremothers. Mm-hmm. Kim, you've, um, as I said before, you've written five books. Have you got another one in you? Yeah, I've got a couple that are percolating right now. So I'm really big on personalities and understanding the four temperaments and why we all do things differently and how relationships break down. And I, as a marriage celebrant, I do that as a, um, as a, as a beautiful, fun thing to do. Um, my talk with all couples is understanding because, you know, opposites obviously, obviously often attract. And then usually within that seven year, there's certainly science and behind the seven year itch. Um, these, those beautiful qualities that we were attracted to now become the things that annoy the heck out of us. <laughs> and um, I've become fascinated in that and, and raising my kids in the same home, same um, rules, same values, and yet both needing very different um, support emotionally really taught me a lot about relationships and then Danny you know um, knowing that our marriage and and at times we see things very differently and it's that it's different not wrong so I went over to America a number of years ago and studied uh, the four temperaments so that's definitely a book I'd like to bring out Um, a rituals a self-care rituals book I've got I've started which is all around um, everyday rituals that don't have to cost a lot of time and money but part of that self-care which feeds into the self-love making time um, using I call them triple m's micro moments of mindfulness where even if it's just a three-second spritz, spritz with an essential oil, that's better than doing nothing. Yeah. Um, the accumulation effect, lots of little things throughout the day so that really busy mums, dads, men, women, businesswomen, men, they actually can do little things rather than thinking, oh, I haven't got time to do 20 minutes meditation day and night. What if I was just really present right now for 30 seconds and was really grateful for everything that I can think of in my life right now? <sighs> That is meditation and doing that regularly throughout the day helps a busy person understand that we don't have to be some guru sitting on the side of a mountain with our legs in the lotus position. So I'm really conscious of that and I'm really understanding busy people. So there's definitely, and I've written a number of children's books. It's just a case of getting them published. So yeah, there's lots. Yeah, there's, I have written, I've written a couple of kids books. So um, all about one on personalities and one on essential oils. So yeah, just, I love it. I, I, my mind is full of creation. What It's not about what I'm doing next. It's what I shouldn't do next. That's I need to just, you know, stay in my lane and do what I need to do and stay focused on one thing till I finished it. So doing a book and a project with a book is, is always powerful. It's the most amazing experience and the most bloody frustrating thing I've ever done. It's hard work coming up with sixty to 80,000 words that you hope that the reader is going to be lit up by. Um, but I remember another quote that I had when I was ultra marathoning: "The race is not always to the swift, but to those that keep on going." 
And so it's never about, you don't have to win every race, but you just never give up. Stay on target, one foot in front of the other, and you don't have to be the fastest to be the best. It's those that keep on going. So, yeah, there's there's a number of books in there. Well, Cliffy certainly wasn't the fastest, but he kept going and he didn't sleep from what I can remember of the story about him. And that's how he won his big Melbourne and Sydney race. Is that, am I remembering the same guy? Yeah, he was interviewed at the end of one of his races. I mean, he looked terrible after running, I don't know, 10 days. He was skinny, very sunken eye. Like most ultra marathoners don't look great at the end of a race. Um, So it's not really a beauty sport. But anyway, um, I remember it very vividly. He was asked um, by one of the interviewers next to us and they said, oh, Cliffy, Um, not next to me, next to my coach, my then coach who he was with him, and he said, um, Cliffy, you know, you, you didn't stop at all the different hotels and you didn't sleep like all the other athletes. And Cliffy dazed, looked up and went, oh, what? I didn't realise I could. And that <laughs> hit me. What if we didn't know what we didn't know? Yeah. What a, you know, the, potent, the human potential and unbelievable stuff we could do if we didn't know that failure was an option. Um, that's something that's a rabbit hole that just floats my boat big time because if I didn't know what I didn't know, what's possible? So, And, and that's something that I've learned around education. The more educated I become, I want to remind myself that education is about becoming more open to more education, not getting so cloned to pass an exam And then that's the only way of thinking. I would have thought that people with doctorates and degrees would become vivid and very um, ferocious researchers and open to all possibility, not just that this is the way it should be. So when I hear people with big degrees saying, this is it, I'm flabbergasted. I love hearing someone with a lot of research that goes, well, what I've learned to date and how I feel right now is that this is the way it looks. And I love listening to people like that. And there's so many amazing podcasts and so much free information out there that wouldn't it be great if we went into every interview, every podcast, every um, movie and documentary and screening that we ever watch going, isn't that interesting? Um, You know, people slam the heck. You want to get Pete Evans on your show. He's amazing. People want to knock the hell out of that man. And they love to hate him. And the more, now that he's not attached to my kitchen rules, the more free he's got with his speech. Yeah. And and he really doesn't give a shit what you Does think. Does not he give a fuck, is, he? he? is the most, and I texted him at one point. I had the privilege of marrying him and Nick. And I texted him at one point. And I said, are you okay? When I saw the 60 Minutes thing coming. And he said, you know, if I'm not here, and there's been an accident. It wasn't an accident. And I just texted him and said, shit, Peter, you okay? And he just said, oh, you know, yeah, I'm playing with them. You know that they're going to only screen what they want to screen. Just remember that. And I'm all good and, and you know, loving life. And he just sends love to everyone that shits on him. He just sends them love and light. And I just think, you know, you don't have to agree with him, but you don't have to hate the guy. The guy, is, his whole passion has been to help people eat better. And he has studied a lot. And anything he doesn't know, he gets the experts in. So I just find it very interesting, people that want to slam people like him without doing the research. And, you know, all things around vaccination, things around diet drinks, things around uh, politics, things around money. There are so many open conversations we could have without feeling like we have to be one way. I just think the world would be a better place if we had the ability to take better care, be more mindful, be kind, um, 
be okay with other people having other opinions, you know, the circle or the rectangle. You know, I'm seeing the circle. You're seeing the rectangle. Are both of us wrong or are both of us right? It's both the same pen. So I love that analogy to help us understand that there's always another way. And so whenever my kids come to me and go, this is what they've said and I'm not happy and I go, there's always another perspective. Come up with another way. What would you see it? And is it right or is it wrong? So I don't know. I, I I, I love that line, you know, um, there's my business, your business, and universal business. Universal business is planes dropping out of skies, volcanoes erupting, things that we have no control over. Then there's your business and what you do and how you live your life and what you're about is your business. And it's none of my business to get into your business. Just like it's none of my business what you think of me. There's my business. What I have to focus on is my business. And again, if we could just be really proud of that, you know, I was driving down the freeway with my beautiful grandmother when she was still alive. I wrote this in the book because I thought it was so profound, but we're driving down and this, this guy cuts me off and he was driving like a bloody idiot. And I was trying to get the window down to give him the fingers and tell him what I thought (laughs) of him and, and, you know, tell him to drive more carefully because I had precious cargo on board. And grandma just puts her hand on my leg and she goes, oh, I hope he's okay. I said, what do you mean you hope he's okay? He just about bloody killed us. And she goes, oh, darling, you don't know. He might have just had a phone call that his wife's fallen ill or is about to have a baby or his child's fallen off the jungle gym. And I remember driving thinking, oh. and now he could have been just a bloody idiot, but I don't know that. Have I ever driven erratically if I've had a phone call from the school that something's happened with one of my kids? Have I been worried when I got the phone call when Danny's sister tragically died? Did I don't even remember driving there. I don't remember the drive. So to say that that person's a bloody idiot, again, he could be or not. And that's my other favourite line. Whenever my kids come into me, they go, oh, he's just the Mr. So-and-so's this. And I go, or not. Um, you know, he may not, he just might have been having a bad day. Maybe he's out of the circle of self-love. That's what I also say. When someone treats you really badly, they're operating out of a place of self-sabotage because if you're operating out of a place of self-love, you would not speak like that. So then being mindful that when someone's awful to you, ah, they're just they're just in their pity party they're, or they're in a bad place or something's horrible's happened. I'm just not going to take this personally. And that book, The Four Agreements, where, you know, you look at those four things. Number one, be impeccable with your word. Number two, don't make assumptions, ask questions. Number three, um, don't take it personally. And number four, always give your best. I love those things because how often do we not always do all of those things? Um, Being above and below the line. I loved that learning. When we're below the line, we're in blame, denial and excuses. And we all do it. That's victim mentality. But when we go above the line, we take accountability, responsibility and ownership for everything. We may not be able to help what happens to us, but we certainly can be in charge of how we react to it. So all of these things make us more aware humans and more compassionate and proud of our vulnerabilities and open to share. That's why I love what you're doing with your book and who you are and who you're interviewing. I think, you know, the power of vulnerability and falling off the wagon or not being our greatest is also sometimes our greatest superpower as well, because in those times we actually become very heightened to our emotions. Um, we, if every, if life was great every day of every moment of our lives, how boring would that be, you know? And I remember sitting with His Holiness, the 12th Kenting Thai Satupa when I was in India and I just launched one of my books over there 
Um, my dream was to be a Hay House author and I got to launch my book as a Hay House, or Hay House author over there. And out of that, I got to spend seven days at a monastery up in Dharamashala and I got to have a one-on-one with this, the education, uh, the head of education for all Tibetan Buddhist monks. And I sat there with him and he was, he speaks better English than the Dalai Lama, but he was like, oh, oh, what would you like to know? And I said, you know what I want to know? Why is struggle such a big part of everyone's life? Why do we all have to struggle? It's not fair. Why is there so much pain and anguish on earth? And he goes, oh, very human question. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? And he said, my darling, if you could only understand the dichotomy of life, we must have dark to understand light. We have to have low to understand high. We need to know the bad to understand good. If we can experience that, we know the opposing force. And I think that just really opened my heart, which is why I knew there's only two opposing forces on this planet, love and fear. And so everything that happens in here is based on our circumstance, upbringing, personalities, moods, what we're eating, our gut microbiome, our mindset, our beliefs, that's all here. But when you sit in a place of pure love, There is nothing but compassion and care and forgiveness and kindness. And when you sit there, and I'll always say it to my kids, you know, pretend you're putting on rose-tinted glasses. Now how do you see it? Um, It's not to say that we're silly or that everyone's love and peace and harmony and all of that, but it's I don't have to buy into your BS. I don't have to buy into this. Who am I with love? I understand that you have a different perspective. That is it. And that is a really beautiful place to sit because then you don't get all the triggers happening and you don't find you're fighting and pushing. You're just being. And that is one of the greatest of all human things to do is to be a human being. Wow. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Kim Morrison. Holy shit. That was awesome. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com